Civil Government, Its Origin, Mission, and Destiny, and the Christian's Relation to It, by David Lipscomb. Chapter 4. Early Church Writings and History. We now introduce some early writers in the Church to show that the idea of separation from affiliation with civil government was inherited from the Apostles. Justin Martyr, A.D. 150, in his Apology to the Emperor in behalf of Christians, presented all the reasons he could to propitiate the favor of the Emperor toward the Christians. He assured him, in his second Apology, Taxes and customs we pay the most scrupulously of all men, to those who are appointed by you as we are taught of him, that is, of Jesus. This was given as the extent of their connection with the government. Tertullian lived about A.D. 200, born within fifty years of the death of John. He says, The image of Caesar which is on the coin is to be given to Caesar, and the image of God which is in man is to be given to God. Therefore the money thou must indeed give to Caesar, but thyself to God. For what will remain to God if all be given to Caesar? This was to show the order as received from Christ was to pay taxes, but to give not personal services to the civil government. Tertullian said also, If he, Christ, would not even once exercise the right of dominion over his own, for whom he did the most menial services, if he, fully conscious as he was of his regal power, yet shrank from being made a king, he gave a perfect example to all his disciples to avoid all which is high and glorious in rank and power. Tertullian says also, The Caesars themselves would have believed in Jesus Christ if they had not been necessary for the world, or if Christians could have been Caesars. This clearly means that Caesars in the sense of civil officers could not be Christians without surrendering their positions. Origen, in reply to Celsus, an able writer against Christians, charging that Christians enjoyed the benefits without contributing service to the government, said, The Christians render greater assistance to their country than other men, inasmuch as they instruct the citizens and teach them to become pious toward God, on whom the welfare of cities depends, and who receives those whose conduct in a poor and miserable city has been good into a divine and heavenly city. Celsus argued that it was their duty to perform the duties of magistrates in their native cities. Origen replied, But we know that in every city we have another country whose foundations are the word of God, and we require it from those who are competent by their talent and pious lives to take upon themselves the offices requisite for the maintenance of order in the churches. Then the talent of the church was devoted to the service and upbuilding of the church. Now the talent and character nursed and developed by the church are, as a rule, devoted to building up and operating the human governments, while the church languishes and suffers for lack of the services of its children to maintain its internal affairs or carry its truths to the world. We will let these quotations from these three prominent writers of the first two centuries suffice. We now give statements from some prominent historians of the early church. Neander says of the early Christians, 
It was far from their imaginations to conceive it possible that Christianity could appropriate to itself the relations and offices of the state. The Christians stood aloof from the state, as a priestly and spiritual race, and Christianity seemed able to influence civil life only in that manner which it must be confessed is the purest by practically endeavoring to instill more and more of the holy feeling into the citizens of the state. Gibbon gave as the secondary causes of the wonderful progress of the Christian religion, one, the inflexible and, if we use the expression, intolerable zeal of the Christians derived, it is true, from the Jewish religion, but purified from the narrow and unsocial spirit which, instead of inviting, deterred the Gentiles from embracing the law of Moses. Two, the doctrine of a future life improved by every additional circumstance which could give weight and efficacy to that important truth. 3. The miraculous powers ascribed to the primitive church. 4. The pure and austere morals of the Christians. 5. The union and discipline of the Christian republic which formed an independent and increasing state in the heart of the Roman Empire. Volume 1, page 505. The Christians felt and confessed that such institutions, human governments, might be necessary for the present system of the world, and they submitted to the authority of their pagan governors. Gibbon continues, This indolent or even criminal disregard of the public welfare exposed the Christians to the contempt and reproach of the pagans who very frequently asked what must be the fate of the empire, attacked on all sides by barbarians, if all mankind should adopt the pusillanimous sentiments of the new sect. Gibbon, Volume 1, page 552. But as the Christians increased in numbers, they began to grow worldly. Gibbon continues, The church still continued to increase its outward splendor as it lost its internal purity, and in the reign of Diocletian, the palace, the courts of justice, and even the army concealed a multitude of Christians who endeavored to reconcile the interests of the present with those of a future life. Volume 1, page 586. Continuing, If we seriously consider the purity of the Christian religion, the sanctity of the moral precepts, and the innocent as well as the austere lives of the great number of those during the first ages who embraced the faith of the gospel, we should naturally suppose that so benevolent a doctrine would have been received with due reverence, even by the unbelieving world that the magistrates, instead of persecuting, would have protected an order of men who yielded the most passive obedience to the laws, though they declined the active cares of war and government. More from Gibbon. A.D. 284-300 A sentence of death was executed on Maximilianus, an African youth, who was produced by his father as a sufficient and legal recruit, but who obstinately persisted in declaring that his conscience would not permit him to embrace the profession of a soldier. Next, on the day of a public festival, Marcellus, a centurion, threw away his belt, his arms, and the insignia of his office, and exclaimed with a loud voice that he would obey none but Jesus Christ the Eternal King, that he renounced forever the use of carnal weapons and the service of an idolatrous master. He was condemned and beheaded for desertion. Gibbon, Volume 2, page 60.
again. The Christians, it was charged by Galerius, renouncing the gods and institutions of Rome, had constituted a distinct republic. Gibbon, Volume 2, page 62. Again, the humble Christians were sent into the world as sheep among wolves, and since they were not permitted to use force even in defense of their own religion, they should be still more criminal if they were tempted to shed the blood of their fellow men in disputing the vain privileges and sordid possessions of this transitory life. Gibbon, Volume 2, page 255. And again, the Christian subjects of Armenia and Iberia formed a sacred and perpetual alliance with their Roman brethren. The Christians of Persia, in time of war, were suspected of preferring their religion to their country. Volume 2, page 275. And last, the Christians, after the conversion of Constantine, still resorted to the tribunals of the Church to decide their claims and pecuniary disputes. Gibbon, Volume 2, page 280. Gibbon supposes there may have been Christians in the army of Marcus Antonius, the thundering legion, but owns there is doubt about it. Lardner also thinks it doubtful. Gibbon, Volume 2, page 46. It is reported that Christians were in this army about to die of thirst and prayed to God, and a rain and thunderstorm were sent in answer to prayer. The term Christian came quite early to be loosely applied as it is now. Many who claimed to believe Christ divine, although they did not obey him, were called Christians. They belonged to families and communities that recognized Jesus as Lord. It was doubtless this class that was in the army. Lardner says that A.D. 361, the apostate Julian, then emperor, refused to give the government of the provinces to Christians because, as he said, their law forbids the use of the sword for the punishment of such as deserve death. Julian not only deprived the Christians of magistracy and of all the honors and dignities, but of equal rights of citizens. Lardner, Volume 1, page 597. The emperor Julian was raised a Christian, a man of learning and discrimination knew perfectly the faith of the Christians and what that faith had been from the beginning. He apostatized to the pagan religion, and as the Christians had become popular and under Constantine had been encouraged to depart from the well-known practices of the early church and to hold office, as he dismissed them from office or refused their applications, he taunted them it was contrary to their law. Gibbon, Volume 1, page 550, says... The Christian's simplicity was offended by the use of oaths, by the pomp of magistracy, by the active contention of public life, nor could their humane ignorance be convinced that it was lawful on any occasion to shed blood of our fellow creatures, either by the sword of justice or by that of war, even though their criminal attempts should threaten the peace and safety of the community. Gibbon again, Volume 1, page 557. But while they inculcated the maxims of passive obedience, they refused to take any active part in the civil administration or military defense of the empire. It was impossible that Christians, without renouncing a more sacred duty, could assume the characters of soldiers or magistrates or of princes. We could greatly multiply similar testimony to these. Accounts are given of the gradual participation of Christians in civil government, 
but the so-called conversion of Constantine greatly accelerated and spread the custom. Prince Julian was raised in the Christian faith. He apostatized to paganism and became emperor. Gibbon says, The hopes of the future candidates, Christians, were extinguished by the declared partiality of a prince, Julian, who maliciously reminded them that it was unlawful for a Christian to use the sword either of justice or war. In Volume 2, page 255, Gibbon says of the Christians, Faithful to the doctrine of the apostles who in the reign of Nero had preached the duty of unconditional submission, the Christians of the first three centuries preserved their consciences pure and innocent of the guilt of secret conspiracy or open rebellion. When they experienced the rigor of persecution, they were never provoked to meet their tyrants in the field or indignantly to withdraw themselves into some remote and sequestered corner of the globe. Again, page 256. But the Christians, when they deprecated the wrath of Diocletian or solicited the favor of Constantine, could allege with truth and confidence that they held the doctrine of passive obedience and that for three centuries their conduct had always been conformable to their principles. Mosheim, in Murdoch's translation, volume 3, page 200, in the article Anabaptist, says... Prior to the age of Luther, there lay concealed in almost every country of Europe, but especially in Bohemia, Moravia, Switzerland, and Germany, very many persons in whose minds was deeply rooted that principle which the Waldenses, the Wycliffeites, and the Hussites maintained, some more covertly, others more openly, namely that the kingdom set up on earth or the visible church is an assembly of holy persons and ought therefore to be entirely free not only from ungodly persons and sinners but from all institutions of human device against sin. Again on the same page. This principle lay at the foundation of whatever was new and singular in the religion of the Mennonites, and the greater part of their singular opinion, as is well attested, was approved some centuries before by Luther's time by those who had such views of the nature of the Church of Christ. On page 213 he gives these doctrines that were common for centuries before Luther, now brought into notice by Mino, the founder of the Mennonites. 1. They should receive none into their church by the sacrament of baptism unless they are adults and have the full use of their reason. 2. That they should not admit magistrates nor suffer their members to perform the functions of magistracy. 3. That they should deny the justice of repelling force by force or of waging war. 4 that they should have strong aversion to all penalties and punishments, especially capital punishment. 5. It forbids their confirming anything by an oath. As late as the year 270, Lardner, Volume 2, page 668, tells us, Paul, Bishop of Antioch, was tried by a council of bishops. Among the charges was, quote, he accepted secular dignities and chose rather to be considered a judge than a bishop. Page 